This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to Money Talks from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog. And this week, how to feed the world. Cracks are beginning to appear in the farm-to-table supply chain. For any farmer, throwing out basically the fruits of your entire labour is a very challenging and uncomfortable decision, but ultimately we don't have a choice. Might past crises hold lessons about how to keep food supplies flowing. I think that this pandemic might shock people into realising that the approaches we were taking before aren't going to be sufficient anymore. And could this test help prepare producers to feed tomorrow's world? It tips the entire concept of food production on its head. For billions of people, the journey their food makes to get to their plates is a mystery. And they're happy for it to stay that way. That is, until their reliable supply of grub is threatened. As much of the rich world went into lockdown to try to stem the spread of the coronavirus, fears of shortages sparked panic buying of store cupboard staples. As some countries began to limit exports of wheat and rice, even leaders known for their multilateralism, like France's Emmanuel Macron, were calling for a new drive to national and regional self-sufficiency. Il nous faudra rebâtir une indépendance agricole, sanitaire, industrielle et technologique française et plus d'autonomie stratégique pour notre Europe. But in a kind of capitalist miracle, many of those early fears have not materialised. The global food system, the unsung star of 21st century logistics, has largely managed to carry on filling shelves, plates and stomachs. To find out how and whether it can continue to do so, I'm joined by our finance correspondent, Mathieu Favas, who's written a briefing on this subject in this week's Economist. Hello, Mathieu. Hi, Rachel. So, Mathieu, first of all, can you sketch out the global food system for us? What does it include? It is a huge system. It's worth about $8 trillion, uh, so 10% of global GDP. It employs perhaps um, 1.5 billion people. It's essentially the the set of actors and infrastructure and and all the the things that will bring the food from farm to fridge. And it's achieved a lot as well in recent years. Uh, So, since 1970, The global population has doubled, but the food we produce has nearly tripled. Um, And during that time also, the share of the world uh, population that is going hungry has fallen by two thirds, so from 36% to 11%. So that's an astonishing uh, amount of work that the global food system is doing. Apart from those early images of empty pasta shelves in, in rich world supermarkets, how much has the coronavirus pandemic disrupted that system? Well, so far, it's, it's not really been a question of supply. Uh, it's been more a shift in demand and then disruptions to processing and transport. So the most striking is the closure of restaurants, uh, canteens, cafes and bars, uh, because altogether they account for perhaps 30% of full calories we consume. It's driven a shift in what we consume. So 
typically people at home uh, eat less fancy product. So we've seen, for example, an avocado glut in, in Australia because uh, there's far fewer avocados being consumed. There's less fish and seafood generally being eaten. Also less milk because people don't drink lattes and cappuccinos anymore because they, they don't go to the cafe. To come back to the point about transport and processing, the greatest disruption is in air freight. So we, we don't realize, but often um, when we're sitting in a plane, uh, just below us, there's, there's food being transported. Uh, and obviously, there's far less travel happening. So that's a problem for, for this type of food. And then processing also is impacted. Uh, slaughterhouses uh, have had to close in a number of countries, especially in America, where these factories are really big. But I guess the, the more... Um, the more tragic aspect of it, and, and perhaps the one that we should look at more closely, is the fact that in many countries, incomes have, have collapsed. So people have lost jobs, uh, or their pay has been cut, or they're on furlough. Uh, and this is true in both the developing and developed worlds. And the consequence of that is that we may see uh, a lot more people go hungry this time around. Not because the system is failing or because supply is, is reducing, but because incomes are, are lost. And yet for all this, you argue in your piece that food systems have actually been relatively resilient up to this point. Why is that? It's, it is the case because actually a lot of the core of our diet, things like wheat, rice, and also the grains that are used to, to feed animals, uh, so corn as well and soybean, this still travels quite easily actually because the handling of such food stuff is highly automated. It doesn't need a lot of labor, so there's not so much, uh, so many issues with social distancing. And the supply chain as a whole has been remarkably nimble at, at um, dealing with the consequences. And this has dented efficiency a bit, but not very much, and it still allows the, the food to travel. And at the other end, supermarkets have uh, one restocked, but also they found new import routes. So they have explored new countries that they did not source from before. And the net result of that is that actually the price for staple food has not uh, risen very much. Uh, in fact, for a number of them, it has declined. And do you think those systems will continue to hold up? What are the main risks on the horizon that should be defended against? Well, one of the main risks is that more people will go hungry. Um, again, not because supply is dwindling, but because incomes are being cut. And for example, the UN estimates that we could see the number of, of hungry people facing extreme hunger double to 265 million people around the world, which is, a, which is a huge number. There's also the risk that farmers produce less. Everything that has to do with fruit and vegetable, which typically is, is very labor intensive. Another risk that is, that is less often mentioned is credit. So every link in the chain from the, the truck driving company to people who ship the goods from one port to the next, they rely on, on credits to uh, buy the produce at, at the beginning, which they then sell. And banks are less willing to lend, especially for things like commodities. So we could see perhaps a crunch over there too. And on top of all this, we could see governments lose their cool potentially. So if they are worried about supply uh, or they see prices uh, increase, some of them could decide to stockpile, uh, especially big importing countries, which would push prices up. Or perhaps worse, the large exporting countries could decide to reduce or restrict exports, which again could boost prices quite significantly. The pandemic is putting every link of an $8 trillion food chain under stress. But to understand what this means on the ground, you have to speak to a farmer. As you've probably heard, everyone's baking from home. We've seen a spike for higher quality wheats that go into milling markets. Alain Goubeau and his family run about 600 head of cattle and 2,000 acres of corn, soy and wheat in eastern Ontario, Canada. 
Um, and as a result, uh, we were right in the midst of our planting period when the effects of COVID-19 really started coming through. And so we shifted some of the acres that we would typically dedicate to corn into wheat. As a dairy farm, we have some flexibility. Worst case, we can also feed it to our animals. The disruption has been greater in his main milk business. We have seen a significant drop in demand for milk. We were effectively asked to reduce by about 12% overnight uh, the production of milk at one of our, our two operating farms. And the challenge with that is you just can't turn a cow off, so to speak. There are some things you can do to reduce the overall production of a dairy herd, uh, but they do take three, four weeks to come into effect. So this is things we started actually three, four weeks ago. Despite all this, we still had a short-term uh, problem of excess milk. Um, in our case, that added up to about 600 liters per day um, in, in April. And so we were trying to figure out what to do. Now, the challenge in the Canadian system is you would ask, well, why wouldn't you sell it to consumers or donate it even to a food bank or those in need? Um, but there's a bunch of challenges there. The first is the product is fresh and highly perishable. Uh, we're not set up on the farm to bottle and ship milk. Even if we wanted to do that, we'd have to invest, which can't be done overnight. So we're left with effectively having to throw it out. For any farmer, throwing out basically the fruits of your entire labor is, is, is a very challenging and uncomfortable decision. But ultimately, we don't have a choice. Um, it's, it's dumping money, effectively, what it is in our view. And thank God some of the other methods have helped us now get to a point where we have been able to reduce our production and be more in line with what uh, the system is asking us to deliver. Alain has a unique dual perspective on this situation. As well as his own farm, he runs FarmLead, a platform he developed as a sort of eBay or Craigslist for North American trade in staple crops. Bunch of different movements going on in the market. One of the differences that's fairly notable is some places in the world have actually uh, put export restrictions in place. So if you look to Russia, Black Sea area, there is um, a shift towards a more sort of food security nationalism. And that actually has created opportunities, certainly on the Canadian side, for example, we're a large exporter of high quality milling cereals to see that demand effect kind of flow back to us. Uh, another staple crop that's seen a spike in prices and sort of short-term demand or what we call spot trading with you know, buy it now and deliver it fairly quickly in the next couple of weeks type of situation has been in things like pulses and lentils, peas. Again, um, there's also been some effect tied to those crops because of uh, Indian import markets, where India, because of the lockdown, there was some concern about the availability of agriculture labor. And so there were questions about whether or not they would uh, have to more aggressively buy on international markets. But alternatively, we've seen a, a demand drop in, in corn. A lot of North American corn goes into gasoline because no one's driving. No one is consuming gasoline, which trickles back into no one has a demand for ethanol. And so I think what that's done is kind of held back on people making decisions about to commit their upcoming crop of corn um, to a forward market because there's nothing appetizing in terms of the prices out there. In such a global system, the power of the butterfly effect is painfully clear. So one thing that happens as a result of ethanol production is an interesting byproduct cut there called DDGs, dried distillers grain, which is a very nutrient-rich byproduct that uh, can be fed to cattle, to hogs, etc. Because ethanol plants have shut down, uh, this byproduct is no longer available. So as a result, uh, we've seen some producers start looking for alternative feed sources in order to feed their animals, but 
that's been a very short-term effect because there's been such a reduction also in, in meat demand um, because of supply chain bottlenecks there that uh, there's also a question about how do you just reduce uh, the feed consumption on these farms. There is um, a real risk of seeing an uptick in, in bankruptcies in these highly exposed uh, parts of the market. Uh, there's already been an uptick observed in some of bankruptcies on U.S. farms relative to where things were last year. But I think we're just at the beginning of seeing the real effect of, of the shock through the system. The meat industry is particularly exposed and nowhere more so than in America. The nation gobbles up more meat per person than any other. But domestic disruption has driven fears of a shortfall, and some supermarkets are already rationing the number of burgers, steaks and sausages consumers can buy. Every year in America, over 33 million cattle, 120 million pigs and 9 billion chickens are slaughtered. But the coronavirus pandemic has hit America's meatpacking industry hard. Adam Roberts is our Midwest correspondent. Meat processing factories are crowded and labour-intensive. As coronavirus has spread, some of these facilities have become prime breeding grounds for the virus. Many workers have been infected and several have died. More than 20 plants have shut while the rest have pared back. As a result, in recent weeks, farmers and meat packers have been forced to cull millions of chickens and to kill pigs to be rendered for fat and tallow, or just buried. In America, just a few big companies dominate the industry, and they've raised the alarm. One of them is Tyson Foods, headed up by John Tyson. We care about our folks, we care about our communities, our farmer relationships. That's just kind of who Tyson Foods has been. The family-owned business is the second largest food company in America and employs over 100,000 people. On the 26th of April, John Tyson took out full-page ads in national newspapers. He warned that America's vulnerable food supply chain was breaking. He asked the government to help. The White House responded. On the 28th of April, President Donald Trump invoked emergency powers under the Defense Production Act, declaring that the closure of meatpacking plants threatened critical infrastructure. We're working with Tyson, which is one of the big companies in that world, and we always work with the farmers. There's plenty of supply. There's plenty of, as you know, there's plenty of supply. It's distribution, and we will... Uh, probably have that today uh, solved. It was a very unique circumstance. This order might have been intended to give firms some protection against legal liability. For example, if more workers become infected or die. For now, the industry is hobbling along, but there are other issues hindering its progress. Over time, economies of scale have made it efficient for just a few big companies to grow enormous, so they dominate supply chains and the market. But big isn't always better. For the last five years, I've been telling my students one of the issues with big is it's fragile. Temple Grandin designs and audits slaughterhouses in Colorado. You know the old thing, don't put all your eggs in one basket? Well, the problem is if you have just a few major suppliers on supply chain for anything, not just me, and you lose one of those suppliers, you're in trouble. I asked Temple what she thought it might mean for some of America's favorite foods probably going to make it more expensive. There was a large amount of meat being exported, and uh, that may absorb some of it, but it's going to make costs go up. If you have to slow a plant down, it costs more per pound of pork to run the plant. Temple says a lot depends on isolating slaughterhouse workers who are unwell. She suggests staggering shifts and setting up separate places to eat, as well as slowing the lines. 
some people panic and they try to run it faster or something, that'd be worse. You know, to make it more stable, you slow it down. It's better to keep it open, running more slowly, than to have it shut down. As Temple says, they'll have to slow down those meat lines, but they'll have to think further as well for the industry to really be resilient, to be prepared if another pandemic hits. They have to be more strategic about how they can build in resiliency into their whole industry. And that means spreading out the slaughterhouses, moving meatpacking plants to be smaller so that if there's a problem in one house, it doesn't affect everyone else. This pandemic has shown the fragility in the system, but it's also given it a chance to find out what's wrong and to put it right. Coming up, what can past crises teach us about how to keep food supplies flowing? And could this severe test reveal opportunities for the future of food? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The last time the global food network was under such stress was back in 2007. A sharp rise in prices was exacerbated by panicking governments. Shortages sparked riots from Bangladesh to Mexico and contributed to the conditions that fostered Syria's civil war. The major difference is that at that time there was an actual shortage of food on global markets. Caitlin Walsh directs the Global Food Security Programme at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank. Before that, she also served on the National Economic and National Security Councils in Washington, D.C., For example, there was drought in different parts of the world, in Australia and parts of South America and Europe, and those droughts reduced the production of staple foods globally. And then in an effort to protect domestic food security, somewhere in the ballpark of 33 countries applied food export restrictions. As a result, global supplies fell and global prices rose. And so we had in a relatively short period of time, the price of rice on the global market tripled and the price of maize and corn about doubled. And then there are other factors that were happening at the same time too. So at that time you had demand just coming online from emerging economies like Brazil and China and India. You had a high cost of energy at that time, and energy, of course, is strongly correlated with food prices. And then very importantly, global stocks of grain were at their lowest point since 1973. It's a very different picture to the one the world is facing today. I think that this pandemic is illustrating perfectly but tragically the vulnerabilities across food systems writ large. What we're being forced to recognise is that increasing the production of food does not necessarily lead to better food security. We don't actually have a shortage of food on global markets. So I think that we need to look at entire food systems and look at the importance of everything from ag productivity to the movement of inputs onto farms to food storage, food preparation, processing, etc. This new reality is forcing a re-evaluation of how the entire global food system works. When I first started working at the Department of State on global food security, right in the aftermath of the 07-08 food price crisis, the response that we were promoting made really excellent sense. It was investing in agriculture in developing countries, which increased the availability of food and also had a positive impact on incomes among farmers who, at that time, made up the majority of food insecure people in those countries. So there is a double benefit where you increase the amount of food available and increased incomes among the poorest and most food insecure people. But I I think that that response didn't keep pace with changes we were seeing around the world. 
again, we saw that the numbers of migrants, refugees, and IDPs was hitting historic highs. You saw urbanization was increasing. All these factors that were showing us that people could be food insecure who were not just people who were working on farms. And so it was a frustration to a lot of people in the food security community that our approaches hadn't kept up with what was happening around the world. And I think that this pandemic might shock people into realizing that the approaches we were taking before aren't gonna be sufficient anymore. As everyone from smallholders to heads of state considers how to reinforce their existing food networks, the current crisis brings into sharp relief the challenges the system faced before the pandemic. Climate change is already and will continue to be a significant impact for farmers. We're going to continue to see challenges in terms of just the profitability on farm. Aramar Kukutai runs Finisterre, a venture capital firm. He's been watching closely to see how the pandemic might reshape the cutting edge of agricultural technology. What has been a trend towards looking for increased automation, as well as ways of looking through and reimagining how you work efficiently in the supply chain, these are all getting much greater impetus added to them by COVID. And also, I think actually in terms of the, the digital traceability, you know, provenance, origination, where did my food come from? And it kind of goes back to a trend, actually, that I, I was talking with a, a group of other venture investors about this just recently, that, you know, at-home delivery is here to stay. You know, it was already a significant trend anyway before COVID, but COVID has certainly accelerated that, whether it's grocery, whether it's restaurant, whether it's food service. And if you follow that sort of, you know, trail of breadcrumbs back to the farm and the producers, that's absolutely going to have to change the way in which supply chains operate to service and be more nimble and more responsive and, and frankly, more accountable. Um, you took my next question right out of my mouth with the answer on um, delivery being here to stay. Are there other sorts of trends that you see coming out of this pandemic that will probably be important over the next decade or so? There's been already a noticeable uptick in alternative protein but in this last three years in particular, we've seen um, the, the beginnings or stirrings of cellular agriculture, cultivated meat, as it's sometimes called. This is an area I think is possibly the most disruptive trend of all, given that so much of the current agricultural system is set up to either produce animals or to feed them. And so if you were to think, gosh, I could produce meat without actually producing animals, it tips the entire concept of food production on its head. I hesitate to say that, you know, these industries go away anytime soon because they've evolved over decades, if not centuries, if you really want to take a very long term view. But I think we have sort of an unprecedented period of technical innovation in areas like genetics, cell engineering, fermentation technologies, 3D printing, all of which, you know, are combining to provide disruptive tools for rethinking the way in which we produce our food. Arama, you have offices all over the world. Do you expect to see big differences in these priorities across rich world countries and emerging markets? Certainly in terms of supply chain resilience, for sure. For countries that don't have high levels of automation or even mechanisation, sub-Saharan Africa or India, we have very smallholder farmers and they constitute nearly half the production of food in the world. Versus those, you know, if you take a you know Midwestern farm or somewhere in the Ukraine or somewhere in Australia or Latin America where you can use mechanised planting, spraying, harvesting equipment, you could be managing thousands of acres with a very small group of people. So, um, you know, I guess maybe an overarching way of looking at this too is that the ability to have kind of free movement of people, capital and goods on, on which really all the export and all agri-food really relies, 
that you have a greater level of impact, I think, in developing countries where they don't have the same infrastructure to begin with. I agree with Zorama. I think this, this crisis could kickstart a greener um, technological revolution in, in agriculture. Here's Mathieu Favas, our finance correspondent. I guess probably on, on four different fronts. The first one is that it, it might actually um, make agriculture less labour intensive. Um, so, for example, we could see more robots in the picking of fruits. Uh, the second thing is to continue to make agriculture more precise. So using more drones, planes and satellites imagery as well as sensors in the field and other things like that to try and, and target pesticides, fertilizer more efficiently. And then there's, there's another strain of agriculture that focuses on the soil uh, and making sure we disturb the soil less so it's, um, it's left to do its, uh, its natural job. Uh, agriculture to be more productive without using any, any products. And then finally, and this is possibly a bigger change, we could see a rise in uh, what is called controlled environment agriculture. The idea that we could build high-tech greenhouses on the outskirts of cities, for example. So we could um, produce all year long, we could turn it off and on without too much issues if there, are, you know, if there is greater demand or less of it. And also it would allow uh, for less transport. It would be fresher food and also it would be uh, more friendly to the environment. So that's the longer term. That's really fascinating. Um, in the short term, I suppose protectionism is is still a risk. I'm thinking about Arama's final caveat, as long as free movement of people, goods and capital continues. How confident are you that governments will continue to hold their nerve and not succumb to the kind of protectionism that was so damaging in 2007? Well, what we've seen this time around actually is relatively encouraging because there were a few uh, decisions being made by governments at the beginning of the crisis. So Vietnam imposed controls. Recently, we saw also Russia impose controls and ban uh, wheat exports. But typically, this came from countries that saw their currency depreciate quite a lot. So they were keen to, to make sure they had enough food for themselves. And in fact, a large portion of these controls have been reversed in recent weeks. It doesn't mean that uh, it won't be an issue in the sense that some crops, like rice for example, are thinly traded. Uh, perhaps four or five countries around the world produce more rice than they need. So if just a couple of countries decide to impose uh, pretty strict measures, it could have quite a big impact on prices. Do you think global coordination might help? Could it be the, the World Trade Organization to the rescue? Yes. Uh, and in fact, we've seen a couple of weeks ago, 22 members of the WTO accounting for more than 60% of all exports of food, essentially pledged that they would keep borders open and, and would not restrict trade, which is a really good sign. Um, it would have been better if there were even more of them, uh, and also if this contained uh, binding measures, which I don't think were included in, in the statement. But still a good sign. Um, generally speaking, I think coordination is what will will get us out of, of any trouble. Even locally, in fact, when you think about it, supermarkets, we saw them run out of some items recently, and this might happen again. It would be a good thing if they set up a, a system whereby um, supermarkets, even of a different chain, uh, would trade products they lack locally. We see that actually happening in um, less formal markets, uh, for example, in Africa and in Latin America, between shops that trade food. Um, so why not make it work uh, in our markets as well? Are you saying that business has saved the situation and it's on governments not to mess this up? Well, <laughs> in the short term, uh, yes, in the sense that the reason why the system has worked out is because it's been flexible uh, and we've seen a lot of ingenuity on the part of 
the private sector. But it, it would be too simple to say the government should, should just uh, take a step back and not, not mess things up. In fact, the government has a huge role to play. Uh, first of all, to support incomes uh, through welfare policies, for example, so that people can still afford to buy food. But also to, to try and, and make sure there is enough investment in, uh, in this uh, green revolution in agriculture that, uh, that should happen and I hope will happen. Mathieu Favas, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome, Rachelle. So this evening, when you pick up your chopsticks or your knife and fork, consider the system feeding the world. It should be left free to keep working its magic, not just during the pandemic, but after it too. That's all for this week's edition of Money Talks. To read Mathieu's reporting on the global food system in the current issue of The Economist, subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 weeks for $12 or £12. I'm Rachna Schanberg, and in London, this is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.